This episode is brought to you by Delta Mustad Hoof Care Center. Mustad is a family of companies and leading brands that are rich in heritage and tradition, servicing farriers and horse owners around the globe since 1832. At Delta Mustad Hoof Care Center, we take great pride in our vast offering of farrier supplies and our commitment to serve farriers with product research, educational clinics, sponsorships, and a school program. We are the hoof care people, and we're in the business of helping you, the farrier, and your customer, the horse. Visit us at mustad.com to learn more about Mustad products and locate a supplier near you. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. Few farriers have reached the level of success that Grant Moon has seen on the world stage. He's a six-time world champion at the Calgary Stampede Blacksmith Championship. But when you talk to Grant, the ribbons and trophies, they don't hold a lot of sentiment to him. Instead, it is the friendships and the lessons learned along the way. In this week's episode, we talk about the things that mean much more to Grant in his life and career. He also shares advice in other areas around horseshoeing, including how to prepare for your life after being a farrier. We begin this podcast with Grant talking about his interest in horse and how he got into horseshoeing. We hope you enjoy it. I started um, as a rider, riding jumping ponies, and decided I wanted to work with horses. And my local farrier, the farrier that shot our horses, offered me an apprenticeship. So I apprenticed with Steve Langford for four years in Wales. And in that time, I went to Hereford College to go to the, through the theory part of the farrier learning and then took my diploma at the end of the four years. Um, in that time, I'd also been on the Welsh farriers team and um, competed at a lot of competitions in, nationally in Wales and in England. So early on, uh, you, you were very adept to the forging sets, the competition, I guess, what initially drew you to that and, and how did you, I guess, excel quickly? Um, the competitions was something that my boss did. He was uh, on the Welsh Farriers team and he encouraged me to compete and uh, all the people around us were competing. So it, it seemed like a natural extension for me to compete in the apprentice classes. And the apprentice classes were always working with good basics. Okay, so what year did you get your diploma? I think it was about 1981. I'd have to check on that, but I think it was in that time. And then I took my uh, associate two years later. Uh, shortly after that, I started, well, I was traveling. I'd done some, a couple of competitions in Europe, and I decided I wanted to go to America. And I met um, one of the representatives from uh, Mustad. And he offered to sponsor me to go to California to compete at the California Classic in Malibu. And so that was my first experience with the United States, uh, quite a unique one uh, in California with meeting Gunnar Gatsky, quite a creative bunch of farriers at that time. Tell us a little bit about that first impression, especially with Gunnar. Oh, Gunnar, flamboyant, knowledgeable, great tradesman, a great motivator, excited, excited about the industry. And, you know, it, it, he was just uh, inspirational. And then there was also a big group of American farriers. I met Jim Paul for the first time. I met John Marino for the first time. So I met quite a group, big group of American farriers. Like, you know, the list is long of people that were names in the industry at that time or for many years after. Was it shortly thereafter that you, you moved to Texas? I did about another couple of years coming back and forth, or another year, I would imagine, coming back and forth, and then I decided to stay and move to Texas. Moved to Texas and worked with John Marino and learned about shoeing Western horses, cutting and reining. Learned about shoeing Arabian pleasure horses with uh, toe weights and pads, so it was a steep learning curve for me. But at the same time, I was able to compete in the United States because there were quite a few competitions going on at that time. Talk about that learning curve and, and some of the things you picked up that were unfamiliar to you from coming from the UK system. I think there was a lot more talk of hoof balance at the time where we were very, where I was very focused at the time on shoemaking and traditional, very traditional skills. It opened it up that I had to look at the whole horse, not just the bottom of the feet. 
and the things that we could do with shoeing to enhance movement of the horse. It, I think a lot of it came from, you know, you had a lot of walking horse farriers and trotting horse farriers, standard bred farriers, and they were very focused on balance and movement. Yeah, you've talked about that before of uh, the, the craftsmanship that comes from the long-footed horses, the, the standard bred industry, and, and what you think or what you see it as is the, the big influence it had on, on craftsmanship in America. Yeah, that would be my impression. I think um, a lot of the skills were lost in America, and the people did who did retain their skills were the people that worked with the standard breads and the saddle breads because you couldn't buy the shoes. So those guys had to maintain their skills. And when I first traveled to America, or when I first met them in Ireland on the American Farriers team, they were people like Bruce Daniels, Danny Ward, Randy Lucart, Vern Hornquist. And they were all from that, either long-footed horse or standard breads, and they're the ones that had the skills still to make shoes because you couldn't buy the appropriate shoes for shoeing their horses. Uh, after your time in Texas, you, you came back to the... I moved back to the Isle of Man. I did a few years in the Isle of Man, uh, then moved back to Florida, uh, enjoyed that, and then uh, been back in Europe for about the last 19 years. Tell us about the type of work you've done in Europe with horses. Um, I sh- mainly shoeing sport horses when I had my business, and I moved on from that as I've slowed down. I'll, I'll do some consulting now with farriers and with owners, but I, I, I use the word consultant because I, there's no um, opportunity for, or no indication. I work with uh, farriers and horse owners to work with underperforming sport horses, and I, I have a good relationship as a consultant because I don't take on horse owners as clients. That's an important thing you, you want to establish with the farrier uh, to help their understanding. Yeah, I think for me, that you get a really positive effect from it. The farrier wants to learn. He doesn't mind putting himself out there for constructive criticism because he knows that um, we're doing it for the benefit of the animal, not there's no uh, ulterior motive. I think we we sometimes look to how farriers can slow down and but still stay part of the industry. And so I think the idea of consulting, I, I've met others who've, who've done it, like Blake Brown. How, how do you uh, migrate to that? Or what advice do you have to move more for the consultation versus active shoeing? I think it's a, a very limited um, part of our industry because for every consultant, there needs to be a lot of people out there working. So there's not many job opportunities as a consultant farrier. Um, so it's if you can get to work with your local veterinary practice, that type of thing will get you more consulting work. But uh, at the end of the day, consulting is a, a limited part of the farrier world. We have a lot of listeners in the States. Can you talk a little bit about the British system and help, help us understand uh, the process of education and, and becoming a farrier here? Well, to be a farrier in England, we do have to be licensed. So we have a licensing body called the Farriers Registration Council. And they're there for the welfare of the animal. It's not a farrier association. It's an animal welfare organization and so it's it's mandatory for us to have a four-year apprenticeship and pass the segments in the apprenticeship and then at the end of our apprenticeship we have the diploma of the worshipful company of farriers now that's a different organization the worshipful company of farriers an organization that's been going since about 1345 and that organization examines farriers so their responsibility is to put the exams together they've got the three exams the diploma the associate and the fellowship and so you take the exams of the worshipful company of farriers so we've got the registration council the worshipful company of farriers another organization is the british farrier blacksmiths association and that's our association that's uh, our representation to the farriers registration council to exams to the ministry of agriculture to educational bodies and so the associations serve a very different role to the others. And they are our representative as farriers into industry. Our British Association also has local chapters. And the British Farriers Association also holds the International at Stoneley, continuing education courses for farriers for the AWCF and also for the diploma. So we've got those th- three distinct bodies, and then we have our farrier schools, there's three, 
and their job is to assess the students as they're learning and then to fill them in with the theory. What do you think the, the best strength of the British system is? You, you've seen a lot throughout the world. Uh, uh, you travel quite a bit, especially with Mustad. You see a lot. So uh, what, what would you view that as? Um, I, th- I think it's the, the long tradition, the, the formal apprenticeship, what's expected throughout the formal apprenticeship. I think that and the Farrier schools and then the exam at the end, it's the whole combination of those coming together give people a really good start in the industry. But we're seeing really good farriery in many European countries and around the world. So what was a gold standard is being chipped away at, but by a lot of very, very good farriery in other places. Can you explain that a bit? Well, we, we, you know, I think since we have social media, we can see people sharing and looking, and they have they they can look at other people's work instantly and then try to replicate it. So I think that that's really helped people in developing countries or countries that haven't had so many clinics to develop their skills because it's uh, see it and copy it. Maybe some of the understanding isn't there yet, but it's certainly causing people to gain hand skills, which we are. We're a, we're a trade where our hand skills are so important before we can Im- implement even any science. And now we're seeing um, universities like the Royal Vet College really pushing for farrier vet communication and a greater understanding of farrier science coming into our trade. What we have to remember is that we can't lose sight of what we are first, though, as tradespeople. So without trade skills, we can't implement anything. And without, without a knowledge of anatomy and biomechanics, it's very, very difficult to make horses perform to the maximum. Do you see a progression of how you should learn? Is it focusing on the hand skills and then, then worrying about or, or trying to address knowledge of, of biomechanics after maybe a few years in? Or, or how, do you, how do you view the best process for, for learning? Well, I think that's the thing. The apprenticeship part is the, the gaining the hand skills. It's get, getting the building blocks. And for me, as a young person, I, what I would encourage is thinking of each thing as a process. Don't get tied up in that. The whole application is learn pieces. And that's why typically we will teach someone to We'll teach someone how to pull shoes off. And pulling shoes off becomes a process. They pick up the tools in the same order, do the same thing repetitively, and they take ownership of a process. So each part of our work has to become a process, using the knife, using the nippers, using the rasp. And then the same at the anvil. We have to learn to use the tongs, the hammer, the parts of the anvil. And then if we want to have shoemaking tools, the punches, the stamps, and the fullers. But Learning to punch a nail hole is a process. Just punching one nail hole is not a simple process. It means locating the hole, making the orientation correct in a plain punch shoe so that it's in line with the with the branch of the shoe. So we've located it for coarseness. We've orientated it with the branch so it's not twisted. We'll punch it halfway in. We'll work the outside edge. We'll flatten the hoof surface. We'll flatten the ground surface. We'll punch it all the way in. We'll check the coarseness. We'll pritchel it. We'll level it. We'll clean it with a pritchel again. So just punching one nail hole has to become a process inside the shoemaking. Let's talk about that word uh, process. And uh, you know, something we'll talk about later in this episode is your your experience in competition, and especially Calgary. Talk a little bit about what what you shared with me of skill versus process and and what helped separate you from competition? Well, I think it's talent versus skill. I think talent is often wasted. People who have talent, um, oh, they take it for granted that it, it's going everything's going to work, where someone who has to struggle a little and they have to take ownership of their work it's discipline for me that helps me most. I don't feel very talented. What I do feel is very, very disciplined. So each thing I do is a process. And then I build the processes together 
to come out with a finished job. And it's the assessment as I go along of putting those processes together that will give me a good shoeing. Um, it'll be assessment of the horse. That's a process that I do. And that can be static and moving. Then I can make an assessment of the feet and I assess the coronary band, I assess the, the conformation. Before, this is all before I even pick the foot up. I look at it from different directions. And then when I pick it up, I, I look to see if there's excessive growth, if the foot has become imbalanced and why it would become imbalanced. Then I assess what I'm gonna trim and how much I'm gonna trim and visualize the foot in its trimmed state. And so it's not whether, it's not how much you remove then, it's what you remove. You may do a good trim because you remove very little, or you may do a good trim because you remove a lot. And it's doing what's appropriate, not, not just doing the same thing over and over. And so it's the assessment in each of the processes. So then it comes to the, the, the shoeing part. We've got to choose the correct size shoe, the correct type of shoe with the correct features. Then we have to shape the shoe to fit the foot appropriately and each thing for me is just the next process finish one process correctly move on to the next process i look at work being like a mission not an adventure and so for me each part of it is very deliberate and then i can make a decision to make changes so I, if i'm on the mission I, it doesn't say i can't change it along the way but when i'm on an adventure i have no idea where i'm going how do you develop discipline uh, was that something that came naturally to you? I think the, the discipline comes from the decision to practice. I had good practice ethics when I was an apprentice. It wasn't that I got it, always got it right, but I had good ethics with my practice. I, was, uh, I, I did it regularly. I made sure I accomplished tasks and then would go back and improve the tasks. As I got older and competed at a higher level, I would still prioritize the time to to practice on top of my normal workload. So for me, uh, people say they don't have time to practice. I find very few people really, when they come down to it, can say that. Because my days often start at 4 o'clock a.m. to practice before I had to go out and do a full load chewing horses to make a living so I could go to competitions. So I think it's that it, it, it becomes it all works together is the discipline. When I practice then, I practice pieces. If it was something I hadn't done before, I'd practice one piece, learn what that had to look like before I would be able to continue with the rest of the project. Because when we when we really break shoes down, it's only the extras that we have to work on. Because shoes only come in two types, fronts and hinds. They can come with either fullering or punching. And they can come with a list of other features, but the list of other features isn't many, maybe 15. You know, we can think about it. It's clips, upsetting, drawing down, making shoes concave, welding the heels together to make bar shoes, putting lumps on the end to make heel corks or wedges. Because a wedge or a heel cork is just a piece of material shaped. I think of it like a piece of Play-Doh with a child. They can make that into any shape they want. So if we create material, then all we have to do is form it. And so it's really getting to an understanding of when we see something new, don't confuse it with the bits that we do. Don't confuse the new bits with all the bits that we do know. So for me, it was like, okay, that's a new shoe. It's a different section of steel. So what? I can make the toe bend. I can make the fullering. I can make the nail holes. I can make the clips. So now just focus on the, the things that have changed. What was your first year in Calgary? Oh, I'd have to have a look, but probably about 1983 or four. I'm not exactly sure, but it would be back there. I think it was the third year that Calgary ever happened. So it was way back there. At that time, they didn't have everybody with individual equipment. Farriers brought their own equipment. So as international guests, we uh, flew in and we used people's trucks. Some of the trucks were gas. Some of the gas trucks were coke. So we used whatever. We had all types of angles. And I think it was either one year after that or two years after that that they had um, setups where everybody had the same anvil, forge, and vice. And that really made it a competition that 
made people want to go to. The organization, the fairness of the rigs, the variety of skills that we had to use there because it was bringing in international judges. We were having to make international type of shoes. I would have never made a mushroom shoe from Sweden or an Italian hind or an American toe weight if I hadn't had to go to Calgary. And they challenged me to build more, more skills and more efficiency. And I think that's one of the things I, I learned with efficiency is efficiency isn't really going fast. Efficiency is connecting the processes together. So it's toe bend, forge the heel, bend the branch, fuller it. And then the process of fullering is a whole series of steps. It's not just put a groove in a shoe. If you want it done nicely, it, it, it's a process in itself inside the shoemaking. And for me, that, that was where the efficiency came from. I was always taught efficiency and made the work efficiently. But competing at places like Calgary, where they put really strict time limits at, at, in the early years, that um, they made people work hammer finished. It was challenging. And it was, I would say, a, a new type of competition. Um, for me, a lot of people, it was the ultimate place to go to to compete because you were pushing everybody to the limit. You know, it, it, wasn't, any, uh, it wasn't any cakewalk. It sorted the men out from the boys. It always would come back to your discipline and your process of, of what helped you become a champion there, I'd imagine. Uh, for me, yeah, I mean... Calgary taught me taught me process, made me become very process focused. Um, I've never been able to put those skills down that I, I learned at that time. What were some of the most important things you learned from from the the farriers you would come across at Calgary? Camaraderie that we all had the same the desire to improve in our industry, to take it home and share it with other people, share the skills that we learned with other people. I certainly met a lot of people at that time that have become lifelong friends. And they're all over the world, and sometimes I don't see them for a long time, but when you meet back up with them, it's like having friends yesterday. You've named a lot of names so far. Who, who are some of the others? I, I know you could probably... So oh, for hours. I could sit here for a very long time. There would be mentors that I would have met. Would have, there would have been mentors that I have would have been Edward Martin, Bob Marshall, Dave Duckett, and friends that like Billy Crothers, Carl Bellison that I went to college with, and then new friends like Billy Neville from Australia or Hans Wieser from Holland or Jesper Eriksson from Sweden or Axel Wiebe from Norway. And the list goes on and on and on. And it's being exposed to how they're thinking that made me a better farrier as well. One of the relationships you mentioned earlier was with Mustad, their sponsorship of Calgary. and uh, It's been a very long relationship. Can you tell us about, about your work with Mustad? I was a young person when I got exposed to Mustad. Um, I met them in the international in Ireland as a very young person. I was an apprentice on the Open Welsh farrier team and the director then sponsored me to go to california after that i met them many times um, at different competitions and then at calgary probably in about 89 88 89 they asked me if i'd do some clinics for them and help look at products and i spent quite a bit of time tra traveling with them around the world giving clinics in second world countries third world countries first world countries seeing developing markets, seeing products develop, becoming exposed to other shoeing styles and becoming sympathetic to that, that um, there's more than one style that works very well. Um, they gave me the opportunity to develop as an a, a individual um, through, the, through seeing different styles of shoeing. Being exposed to business, it, it made me go and run my farrier business more professionally. Um, and so over the years, I've been doing clinics with Mustad, well, now continuously since the early 90s and still doing it now all over the world. And uh, it's still exciting 
for me to go and work with young people and some older friends and see what's happening out there and see all the positive changes. One of the things you'll do product development and help Mustad develop product? Yeah, we, we, it's like there were always teams of people that would come onto a new product project and look at local needs for a shoe or for a nail. I mean, that's how some of the nail developments happened, like the concave nail or the hammerhead nail. And um, same with shoes. You know, we, we look at product developments to improve the quality or to improve features or to add features. And then it's seeing, oh, trying to have a, a good guess whether farriers will, will like it in a, in a bigger way, you know, in a multi-market way. So it's not limiting a product for one, trying not to limit a product for one market. And for, for me, traveling with Mustard, they've always um, listened to farriers. That was one of the important things that I enjoyed working for. They listened to what was happening in the market. They supported the market greatly with supporting competitions and seminars. I mean, I, I, I think it's like hundreds of seminars a year around the world that they support in the farrier industry. Um, and today, you know, we have, uh, I think the sixth or seventh generation of Mustad still owning the company, which is a pretty unique company to still have the family name running the company. So one of the experiences you've been able to share with me was a visit to see one of your other mentors, Douglas uh, Bradbury and the UK horseshoeing museum that he runs. Uh, talk a little bit about that because I think there's an interesting aspect to that of, of what you can see at the museum and, and how it, it reveals the work done throughout the years. Well, Doug's always been hugely passionate about our industry, um, taking all his examinations, including the higher examination. I used to practice with him at that time, getting ready, getting ready for the exams, him for his fellowship, me for my associate. And it went on. He he was he trained. I would imagine probably fifteen or twenty apprentices. He was a prolific trainer of young people. Now his son Zafaria and his grandson, and so he still has a great passion for the farrier industries, but but unable to shoe. So I think well, many many years ago he started collecting farrier items, and um, so that they wouldn't be lost to us as an industry. And now he has a. A collection that he's looking after for the farrier industry. I think that I could say that for him. It's not for him. It's for the farrier industry. So we can go there and see where we came from. It's quite unique. It has shoes going back to the Anglo-Saxon times. You know, we're talking shoes nearly a thousand years old. And it's quite easily to have identified that farriers could see front and hinds then. They had, they were thinking about nail placement and they were thinking about therapeutics because there's shoes there with bars welded in and adaptions. So they were certainly looking at the horse and trying to make the horse more comfortable. And we see through history that there's many repetitions. He's got a collection of shoes from British history, but it takes in many of the great names that have written books like Holmes the collection includes shoes by many of the great British farriers like Eric Plant or Tom Williams or Edgar Stern, Fred Varnum. I mean, the, the, the name list is endless. He's got, a, got things like a Bernie Chapman commemorative belt buckle that Mark Caldwell donated. He's got gold medals and silver medals that many farrier families have donated. The collection of shoes for me it, it just shows the the history of the evolution of the horse in the UK but what it does show is that horseshoes have, have been a necessity not a fashion item all the shoes were made from steel and some of them hundreds of years old and at that time steel would have, iron would have been a valuable commodity that they wouldn't have been wasted as a frivolous item on the bottom of horses feet unless it worked They'd have been turned into weapons. And that's always my theory about why a horseshoe is lucky. You see, in as you travel the world, that people of all cultures seem to treasure a horseshoe and they'll put it above the door uh, or on their fireplace. And my feeling that it's lucky because most of us, when we a few hundred years ago, we'd have probably been walking everywhere we went. And if we'd have been crossing America or crossing Europe 
on foot, we'd have been very lucky to find a horseshoe. I mean, we actually wouldn't have been putting it on our fireplace or on our door. We'd have been uh, turning it into a knife or a weapon because steel or iron was a valuable commodity. And so you were lucky to find a horseshoe because you just found a free knife. Talk a little bit about the repetition you see in the museum and certain specimens there. Which one strike you that, that you could provide as an example? Ah, there was an Anglo-Saxon shoe there that was beautifully made. The shape was correct, you know, really balanced and correct. The nail hole placement was absolutely perfect. And it was a big piece of iron that had been forged into a large horseshoe. And I can, I can only be in awe of the man that must have made it five, six hundred years ago that he put so much effort into making a horseshoe for a horse that was going to be worn out in a relatively short time. One of the things you discussed, the idea of today shoeing, shoeing for soundness or trying to achieve soundness versus back then shoeing for comfort, for the animal's comfort. The difference in the mindset of how we approach the animal today versus years ago. Well, now if a horse has a slight lameness, it seems to be a disaster, even if it's an older horse where... Back then, it was, I would say, normal for horses to go lame. And then the farrier's job was to create shoes that would help keep the horse comfortable. And that's why we see a lot of shoes that are made at competitions now that are throwbacks to those days that don't have a practical application now, but they did then. Um, so it, it was, the mindset is, the mindset then was to keep the horse going at all costs, so we didn't have to eat it because a horse working was feeding a family. If anybody wants to see some, some pictures from Doug's museum, they can go to AmericanFarriers.com and see them there in a, a photo gallery. You could spend a day and, and just scratch the surface of some of the stuff that's in there. Uh, but Doug has a lot of specimens from uh, products gone by. And, uh, you know, from your unique perspective of not only being in the industry, but, but helping with Mustad, um, you, you have a, a, can provide a different perspective, I think, than, than others. Some, I think we would say are fads or gimmicks. Uh, what, what separates a product or an idea from being a fad versus those that, that are more adventurous in thought, but have lasting power? Well, I think they fall into three categories is the products that are just fashion based and they have no substance and they're going to go away very quickly. There's the products that are a really good idea, but because the farrier market's very small, even though something can be a good idea, it has no commercial prospect because there's not the volume of sales to support it. And then there's the other products that are a good idea. And because there's a consumption, they become reality and they, they, they stand the test of time. And so we, we, we do see good ideas that come and go just because the volume's not there. You always say you want to make a lot of money out of the horseshoe industry, start with a large one. It's a bit like having a racehorse. I have a few questions on professionalism. You had brought up your work helping you become a more professional farrier. Describe what you view that as. Well, the first thing I think we need to aim to be is a, a tradesman that's involved in continuous education, that we're moving our skills forward. I think that's really important for me, um, first and foremost. And then we can treat our customers like, oh, act in a professional way to our customers and present ourselves in a, a, in a professional way. So being a professional for me, I think first and foremost, we really, really need to be having an ongoing education with our trade skills. That can never stop. Alongside this, we need to run our business in a professional way. So the way we conduct ourselves to the, to the owners, to the veterinarians, to the people around us. Our record keeping needs to be good. So we, we run a professional business to the people the way we run our business, and then also learning more and having a continuous education with the theory. It's a work in progress being a professional farrier. I don't think it's ever, ever finished. So yeah, so being a professional far farrier is the business part and the trade part. 
And for me, you know, it, it, it's going on. I always had a goal to be a master farrier. And uh, every year I, it went on, I never felt to, like I could be a master farrier. And now, after all these years, I have found out it's something unachievable for me. The more I learn, the faster I learn stuff I don't know, or the more stuff I don't know. So that was probably one thing I would have liked to have accomplished was to be a master farrier, and it uh, seems to be an unachievable goal. So as we look at, at how a how horseshoeing becomes more complex and, and uh, that you'll question what you know throughout the years, through your experience now at this point, what subject do you find and, and has become more complex over the years for you with, in relation to what you might perceive as more daily work? Well, with, with human sports, there's a lot of emphasis on posture. With the farrier industry up until recently, there's been a lot of emphasis on confirmation. Well, confirmation is something we can't change. You know, we can support it, we can work with it, but we can't change confirmation. But what we, I think what we're looking at now, much deeper into, is posture. And not being confused between posture and confirmation. Many times we see horses that might be base narrow, base wide, over, over, forward forward with their legs forward event vertical or behind vertical and we have to ask the question now is this confirmation or is this compensation because many times what we're seeing is horses compensating for maybe inadequacies in trimming or inadequacies in shoeing and so what we're seeing is not confirmation related it's compensation and for me that that's the thing the hardest thing to work out is what's confirmation and what's compensation? We can pick the limb up and we can see the misalignment of the legs. And then we've got to relate that to any inadequacies in trimming or feet that have become very distorted because of poor confirmation. And then how we can control the feet to improve the posture. And so for me, posture is probably the thing that we're going to be working more and more with. And how we can improve a horse's posture to improve its performance, improve its its movement. What are some of the telltale signs that, that help you separate that? I, I, I look, if I see a horse with um, a base narrow conformation, what I'm really looking for then is the trim to the to the long long axis or the short axis of the of the leg. If the, the axis of the leg is good and it's inside a vertical, it's probably going to be because, because of um, inappropriate trimming or something's got missed in the trimming. It's what is a reasonable tolerance in our work because I don't think we can work with zero tolerance. We're working with our hands. And so for me, if I, if I had to give tolerances, I'd say if we started with a half inch, is that too much tolerance? I'd say... Yes, it's much too much tolerance. If we said a sixteenth of an inch or a millimeter being a great tolerance, I'd say that's a very tight tolerance when we're working with our hands. So we're probably working with something with two or three millimeters or a big eighth of an inch in tolerance. And after that, it's probably going to start having a negative impact on the way the horse can stand. It's going to change their posture. So it, it, it's working within reasonable limits and uh, for me it's looking back after every job and seeing what I got wrong because if there's nothing wrong I probably didn't look. When you come back to a horse weeks later or however long that time is between appointments what what do you like to look at or what do you look at to evaluate the quality of your work from that time? Well there's the obvious things like clenches up and the foot grown over but for me then it's more about hoof distortion, changes in posture. And then we have to decide, as we're in a very time-sensitive job, and I'll say we're in a time-sensitive job, when we trim the horse or shoe the horse on day one, from that point on, it's starting to grow out of balance, away from normal. So our job is to keep normalizing it and then choosing an optimum time to shoe the horse where we can keep healthy feet and we can keep the horse in balance as possible. Do you find that's one of the most difficult things to manage with clients is getting them 
onto that schedule. As a professional, you can recognize what what the appropriate time is. Sometimes clients, for whatever reason, may not may not see that. It seems to be a struggle for a lot of farriers. I think as farriers, we really need to educate the clients on the, the benefits of the shoeing frequency. So if toes get long, there's more, more opportunity or more chances of injury. So a shorter shoeing period will reduce the instances of injury. It's not, it can't eliminate it. You know, we're working with, a, with an athlete that's going around an arena. It can slip. It can put its foot in the hole, just like us as human athletes, and we can have injuries. But we can minimize it by having appropriate shoeing cycles. And that can be anywhere from three weeks probably to five weeks. When we start getting to a six-week shoeing cycle, we're at the end at the end where feet then do start to become distorted. On the subject of farrier science, is, is that something that has become of greater interest and uh, has prompted you to start doing your own research? I think farrier science has started a very, very long time ago. Um, we see we can see very old books by Russell talking about scientific horseshoeing. There's other people talk about scientific horseshoeing. For me, science, the science of horseshoeing I've been very lazy at. Um, it's very easy to do the practical bits, to sit down and work at the theory bit and think about the theory bit. And to justify it in a scientific way is extremely difficult for me. Um, I've been very fortunate to be roped in by Renata Weller at the Royal Vet College to work on a scientific project for my fellowship. Um, we did the science a couple of years ago, actually, where we were able to CAT scan 100 limbs and mark them up with foot mapping. And then we, can, we did it before and after trim. And then looking at the external reference points to the inner sensitive structures. So it was, for me, it's been just to, to try and confirm the accuracy of hoof mapping and the use it has in a daily shoeing practice. And so hopefully one day I'll, I'll get to finish my scientific project and maybe we'll get onto others that could be interesting. But yeah, I think for me, the science, it is an important part. I need to do something to contribute, something lasting in a scientific way. And I, I'd say there's now opportunities for farriers in the United Kingdom and in the United States where they can work, at work online or with universities to get an online degree or a farrier degree. Another aspect of your career is 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 success in business outside of horseshoeing. How important has it been for you to 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 build a plan for business outside of generating income out there and not solely being reliant on on horseshoeing? Because as we know, it's 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 dangerous work. It can end at any moment for somebody. And how do you go about looking to build a a plan during your work and and afterward? Well, I think I think Farrier's a for me, the only career I love, um, it's some. It, it, it's been very easy. I've been pretty successful at the practical part of it. I've had great clients. I've been able to travel the world teaching seminars, and I've met a lot of farriers, and I, I've seen people that inspired me to think, think further. And that there also had to be exit strategies because you could never plan with Farry being a practical thing how long your career was going to be. And I, I was exposed to quite a number of people like Edward Martin, David Wilson, for a couple of examples that, that had other businesses alongside their farrier practice. And I could see there was a benefit of that, that um, having a business that generated income when you were the, the, the main source of work. So a number of years ago, I, I looked outside the farrier industry because I knew I needed to do something. Oh, I should say I looked inside the farrier industry first, but decided there was enough farrier supplies and enough product developers. So uh, it was to look outside the farrier industry. And because my family had a, a history in hotels, I thought it would be a direction that I could go in. So in 2004, I bought my first hotel and went in that direction to have 
something going alongside my first barrier career so that I do have that opportunity in the future if something happens that I that I have a good continuation plan. I think it's important that, you know, farriers start young enough either with uh, investing, and investing in pensions or investing in other investments alongside their work so that they, we what we probably have in our career is a, a decreasing income. In, with most industries, you, you get older, you get more experience, and you automatically get more money. But with the farrier industry, we seem to look at the we want to increase our income, so we just work harder. And I, you know, I've been very guilty of that myself. Um, instead of looking at like many industries where if you get better, you get more education, then you're allowed to look for pr- promotion, and that can support you. So it's 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 having a, an exit strategy alongside the farrier work, and it can be inside the horse industry or outside. But I'd encourage everybody to have an exit strategy. Yeah, and you mentioned that earlier. Consultation is is a very limited field, uh, supply shops, etc. Stay within ferry. What advice do you have? You you had a natural link to to hotels through your family, uh, uh, but for investigating where you might find an, another interest, even if it isn't a passion. I I, th- I think it's looking around at what small businesses might be for sale in your area, or what ser- other services that people require. It doesn't have to be anything glamorous, you know. It can be a, a a dry cleaners or a coffee shop. It can be something pretty humble. It can always grow into something more, and it's a supplementary income. It doesn't have to re- replace the income that you've got. It's just a supplementary income that can grow. One of the things you said is uh, you don't own the knowledge that you have. Uh, none of it uh, is, is something you, you've developed yourself, and it comes from countless areas how important has that been, that perspective for you of, of, of learning and, and what it has helped you become today? It's the exposure to so many people, so many different ways of looking at the horse, looking at horse swing, looking at the practical parts, looking at the theoretical parts. Um, I, I think uh, everywhere I go, people ask you questions and that can stimulate new thoughts. Um where are we going? Well, I, 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 I think we've got to be careful that our industry doesn't divide. Um, we lose practical or we go too, we, we go too practical or we go too scientific. It, it is the balance of both things, having a knowledge of practical and the knowledge of the uh, theoretical parts. Um, for me, you know, it's, it, it's, it, it's just starting. I, maybe I think every generation of farriers probably thinks the same when they when they're well into their career that it seems like the industry can go on and on and on forever. Um, my highlights have been just working with mentors and working with students, and they both they stimulated me in both ways. I mean, my mentors were getting more out of me and inspiring me. My students inspire me because people surprise you all the time with the dedication they have, the, 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 the fanaticism on how or wanting to be a farrier. I don't, I don't think there's many industries where the people come together like farriers and there's a camaraderie and, and a, an excitement about the, their job because I can't imagine two plumbers getting together and being quite as excited as farriers get, uh, as excited over a, a crack, you know, a crack in a water pipe compared to a crack in the hoof wall. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's ongoing. You know, highlights of my career. Well, I've been uh, work, I worked on the, the Welsh farrier, worked with some great farriers on the Welsh farriers team, and it was like every every time we got together, it was a learning experience. Uh, you know, I was on people with like Billy Crothers and Jim Blurton and Richard Ellis and Alan Woodyett. And then later on the American Farris team with Jim Poor, Craig Trinker, Bob Pethick, Dave Ferguson, and many, many others like Jim Keith. You know, how can you forget a name like Jim Keith? And each time you, you get a highlight, there's the next, there's the next one to look forward to. My, my competition 
work was a highlight, competing at Calgary and winning it six times, competing at the convention and winning the national, the forging championship 24 years apart. Same at Stoneley, I was able to win the individual 25 years apart. And then having students, people that you help, and see them grow in the industry and become leaders. I mean, there's been quite a people, a few people I, I, I've seen develop and played a, a little part in. And I, I, I say a tiny part because most of the, the leaders, they're going to do it without you anyway. They're, they're that inspired. They're that dedicated. They'll learn anyway. Now it, it, it's it's uh, seeing the, the farrier industry grow into the, into the future, seeing uh, things like WCB in the United States and the American Farriers Association, their competitions and continued education growing, being able for me, never thought I'd be able to speak at conferences like the summit or the Farrier Focus Day in England and conferences in Australia. Things that I've got to look forward to in the next 12 months, you know, I've got invites to go to Australia, I've got invites to go back to the United States, all over Europe. So it's like, uh, it's a dream come true to be able to be a, a farrier and to be able to share the things that, I, that, that I've been able to develop. To me, it's interesting too, of, of your trophies, your ribbons and, and where those are and, and the things you're proud of in, in the drawers here. But I think it, it seems to me the, the relationships you build, that's why the, I think it's not that these are forgotten, but they're not on the mantelpiece like trophies and ribbons usually are. And I think it's the less tangible things like relationships have become more important to you than than the end result. Oh, no, I, I, tr I treasure the relationships I have much, much more than the the, the trophies and uh, ribbons that I've had. The, the, the rewards, uh, the, for me, when I competed, the reward was over minutes after I got finished. Um, but the friendships and the relationships that you have around the world and near, near and far, you, you, you can't pay for. And so uh, I, I'm really, a, let's say I'm a people person. I like people. I like, I like to work with the uh, the next generation, I just spent a few days in America and there were apprentices there, young apprentices. And for me, they excite me. You know, the days are never too long. I just, I, and you know, they, you, you can work forever when you're working with young people that uh, are just sucking up information and their dedication to practice. And so, uh, yeah, I'm a, a very lucky person in the farrier industry about to do what I wanted to do. I'd like to thank Grant for taking the time to talk with us and sharing his views. I'd also like to thank Delta Mustad Hoofcare Center for sponsoring this podcast. To share any questions or comments about this podcast, you can post them to it on our podcast page at AmericanFarriers.com slash podcast. Until next time, thank you for listening.